0: Hi, this is Dr. Rachel McKinnon, and you're listening to Love of Field.
1: Welcome, Dr. Rachel McKinnon. Thank you for coming on my podcast.
0: Hi, thanks for inviting me.
1: You mind if I call you Rachel? Yeah, that's fine. Well, thank you. So the way I start every podcast is, I always ask, what's the earliest memory you have as a child?
0: Oh my god, I was not expecting that question. (laughs) Um, I think I was probably like two getting ready for bed, I think that's, that's the first thing I ever remember.
1: Really, just like a little flash of memory? Yeah. How involved in sports were you growing up?
0: Oh, I was born pretty much with a golf club in my hand. My... Parents both played sports and um, I was playing baseball from age five or so and I broke the front window of the house uh, quote-unquote golfing when I was <laughs> five or six and um, yeah they had to replace the front windows because of me and kind of didn't look back.
2: Nice where did you grow up?
0: In Victoria BC Canada.
2: Oh okay. What was
1: like, life like for you growing up?
0: Um, I, I think I had a pretty good childhood. It was, it was a different time back then. That's the 80s. And uh, this is before cell phones, before uh, parents were sort of expected to schedule out your entire day of activities. So we were pretty much free-range kids. I think on the weekends, our parents probably couldn't have told you where we were because we had our bikes and we were off doing whatever we were doing.
2: Mm -hmm. So
0: our our days were mostly spent, you know, playing baseball or tennis or riding bikes or getting into some sort of trouble.
1: Now, obviously, we're we're talking today, and we're going to talk a lot about trans athletes and being transgendered. Growing up, obviously, you identified as a boy. When did you start to notice? Or I don't I don't even know the proper term to say. When did you start noticing the change in how you felt?
0: Yeah, so every trans person's story is different. It's um a myth and a and a problematic stereotype that we all knew since we were age three. Um, that's certainly not my story. I it was right around puberty was starting around twelve when I first started having thoughts that, oh, gosh, I think I'd be happier as a girl. And then, um, again, that was pre-internet. And there just wasn't the media visibility of trans people now. So it just didn't even occur to me as as an option. So, you know, it took me another 15, 16 years to figure that all out. Unfortunately, at the time, the only exposure we had to trans people in the media was uh, like the Maury Povich show and, and Jerry Springer. And those aren't exactly the most positive portrayals.
1: Yeah, that is very true. When you say you you felt you'd be happier as a girl, what do you what do you mean by that? What what made you think that?
0: Yeah, that's that's just hard to answer. Like it's this just deep internal feeling of um, so the medical term we use is gender dysphoria. It's this uh, persistent discomfort, uh, a feeling of a mismatch between um, maybe your sex and and what gender you you really are. Um, and so it's just like you don't know what's wrong it the reason it takes so long for most trans people to come out is mostly to just figure it out for ourselves um before recently when uh, trans stories became much more visible so that um there were more role models to look to like you just didn't even consider it that that this would be the explanation
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I grew up in, I was born in the 70s, you know, adolescence, teens in the 80s. I think the only person that I remember at the time was, I think her she was a model, and I think her name was Tula. I'm blanking on her name, but yeah, you're right. There wasn't a lot of, to go off of. And obviously, yeah. for me, I, I grew up cisgendered male. I never even thought about that. So I, I can't imagine what that was like for you or for anyone who, who is dealing with that.
0: Yeah, and we all deal with it in different ways. Um, for me, it was literally the last option I considered. And um, once I finally got around to, to thinking that that might be the explanation, it was just obvious to me. And this was in my late 20s, as I was finishing my PhD. Um, so I, I've written about this that... The, the time gap between me even considering that I was actually trans and figuring it out was instantaneous. So once I finally was open to the possibility, to me, it was just just obvious. And of course, this is what I am.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When you start to
1: go through this, though, and you're, you said you're 13, not only are you going through your, your gender stuff, but sexual, sexuality starts to play a part. Did you even going through this did you still identify as straight
0: yeah that's a tough question um (laughs) for me sex was always uncomfortable like it's just i don't know it it didn't feel right and more like rather than just sort of the sex talk just the the way that people with uh gender expectations expect you to behave in the world um i i do not understand guys like at all Mm. And early in my transition, I would sort of get this question that like, oh, like, you know, you must understand how guys work because you were one. I'm like, no, like I was faking it the whole time. I I did not get it. It did not come naturally to me. So, you know, from my teenage years into my 20s, I was mostly just like watching guys and how they were acting and, and trying to fake it as best as I could. And. This is common for a lot of trans people. We get really good at faking our birth assigned gender. And it's often a surprise to everyone when we come out as trans. And it just so happened that I I planned to come out to everybody. I was out to a few dozen people. But I wanted to wait till two days after my PhD dissertation, defense, because I just didn't want that to sort of tint the, the defense itself, which is already stressful enough. And that just happened to be April 1st. And I didn't exactly plan that out. And mm-hmm. I, I had more than a few people write me back saying, hey, um, this isn't funny. And I said, no, no, this is, this is real. And I had one person write back again saying, no, seriously, this isn't funny. So um, like no one believed me at first. That's, that's
1: crazy. It, yeah, just the randomness of the day, I guess, made it a lot harder. But I get that from people all the time where they come out now with social media or, or just, you know, in real life, and they get the response, like, I don't believe you or it can't be true. I guess probably just a way for the brain to handle it when someone close to you comes out.
0: I, I do think a lot of it is just most of us are good at faking not being who we really are until we just can't do it anymore.
1: How was sports for you as a teen? Were you still active playing sports?
0: Oh yeah. I, I played sports my entire life, um, competitively at a pretty high level. My primary, so I've I've played tons of sports competitively. I, I'm writing a memoir. I keep remembering different sports I've played. I've played so many. So like, you know, rugby, baseball, badminton, tennis, golf, sport, climbing, cricket, geez, so many. And yeah. Um, so I was just an athletic person. Um, from a very, very early age. I was competing primarily in golf and badminton my whole life as, like, my main two um, serious sports. I had a full-time coach for for badminton. Um, I, I played at the provincial level for golf and at the national level for badminton. And that started from around age 10. And by 15, I was a provincial champion in badminton. It's just, like, I I identified very strongly as an athlete, So sports was like an outlet for me because in order to perform well, you kind of have to push everything else out. So the sorts of, oh, I'm not comfortable and um, people are weird and I don't understand how guys are supposed to, to be. I could just put to the back and then focus on performing.
1: That makes sense. An easy distraction for you.
0: Yeah. A lot of, Um, Trans girls and trans women, we often try to overcompensate um, for like this natural uh, tendency towards maybe femininity, uh, towards like hypermasculine pursuits like sports and and military. So that's a very common theme.
1: Was it tough for you mentally, your teen years?
0: Well, I mean, I don't know what it's like for other people. But I certainly understand that being a teen is hard anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, we're trying to figure out who you are. Uh, It's just a whole lot harder when you've got this other layer of maybe I'm not the person everybody thinks I am.
1: You mentioned that, you know, every teen has their own issues they're dealing with. But I think for the most part, we while we're figuring it out, we still understand what those issues were you know I mean even for sexuality but like you mentioned gender issues back in 80s 90s they weren't talked about as much I just wonder how your overall mental health was
0: well that's why it's for many of us and for me I'm speaking about me because there's just no one was talking about trans people and certainly not in like a way that normal people could be. It just didn't cross my mind as, as an explanation. Mm -hmm. So I think had it, um, I think if I were growing up now, I would have figured it out much, much younger. And, um, if I didn't feel comfortable coming out or transitioning, then I think I would have struggled a whole lot more than I did, not even thinking that it was an option. Um, and, and, I mean, not an option, like it just doesn't occur to you as as an explanation. So as far as I knew at the time, I was struggling in any way that a normal teenager would. I I now know that there were certain layers on top of that, but I didn't at the time, I don't think.
1: In getting ready for this interview with you, I watched your YouTube stuff. And in it, you've mentioned a few times about being asexual do you think being asexual and i assume it's probably been for years do you think that also made it harder for you to figure out what was going on
0: yeah i mean when i talk about like my sexual identities it's it's kind of hand waving and broadly lesbian but basically pan asexual but you know what the fuck does that mean uh It's just, it's really hard. It's hard to pin down. And I don't think I'm that unusual in that. I think a lot of us, our sort of sexualities are more fluid than we think they are. Mm -hmm. So, like I I said earlier, that for me, sex was always, like, uncomfortable. It's just, it was always very stressful for me. And for a while, I thought, oh, that's just the sort of gender dysphoria stuff. And this will get better post-transition. And it it just changed it it's not better or worse it's just different um sex is still extremely stressful and basically my my view on it is fuck it it's not worth it for me Mm -hmm. so it's not asexuality in that like there's absolutely zero sexual attraction to people but it's basically zero And in most cases where I've had opportunities, it's been like, fuck it, not worth it, not worth the stress. Um, That's not to say I've never had sex. I've had lots of sex, um, (laughs) pre and post transition. Uh, So it's not for a lack of trying. Was
1: there when was the moment through this process from 13 to 28 when you was there like ever like a where you reached like the peak of, okay? this is who I am. This is when I get, I feel more of who I am. I I feel myself now. What was that moment? I mean, was there one? Was it, you know, going on medication or?
0: Oh no, um, there was definitely a moment. And, uh, I, I did publish a, a philosophy paper about it because it was so stark for me and being an academic, a professional philosopher amongst other things, Thinking through these things in those sorts of terms is often how I process stuff now. So uh, transitioning right at the end of my PhD gave me a tool set to think through what was going on. And basically, there have been a number of times throughout my life where I've sort of tried to confront this, I I wish I were a girl thing, ultimately unsuccessfully a whole bunch of times. And I I remember two previous, well, one previous occasion, but two occasions one was I, I it was a 20 or so it was near the end of my undergraduate um, studies and I was sort of exploring things I had longer hair and like I went to Christmas one year in pigtails <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, the funny thing was like after I came out to people they're like oh well that explains that so it's not like I didn't try to figure this out before but again it just like didn't even occur to me that that trans was an option it never occurred to me when i was 20 21 that that was even an option and it was when i was 28 uh 29 i i don't exactly remember but um i i had a girlfriend at the time that was very open and understanding and willing to let me explore things and It just seems so persistent that I started looking for resources. So now we've got the Internet and there are more books. And so I just started reading stuff about like trans people to sort of see could this be. And I was sort of doing my research and reading stuff. And and I was reading more and more stories that just they were the old uh, narrative of, oh, I knew since I was three, I never liked masculine things, stuff like that, which wasn't my story. So at first, it didn't seem like being trans was an explanation. But the more I read, the the more diverse stories I was starting to read. They were hard to find back then. But they were there. And as soon as I just opened myself up, like, am I? Like, that question alone, the immediate answer is like, oh, yeah. And that was this just light bulb moment. It was this flash of, am I to yes, definitely? And then... um you know, that was the day I started planning my transition. Um, it took me a week or so to come out to my girlfriend. It took me like another month or so to come out to, to my closest friends and eventually my parents. But the timeline between me even considering it to deciding to coming out was a matter of weeks.
1: And then without getting too personal about the transition itself.
0: Oh, oh yeah, because we're not personal at all yet.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go and ask too many questions where it goes into your personal stuff. So you you come out to people and from day one of actually contacting a doctor or whatever that first step is to the point where you feel I am who I'm going to be, I am who I am. How long is that process? Or was it when you came out?
0: Yeah, well, I think it was from like when I just decided that this is who I am and this is I'm going to make this work no matter what. So again, a lot has changed in the past seven, eight years. Just it's been amazing to watch how quickly society has changed, how access to medical care has changed and social support, mental health support, all these things. It's just rapidly changed in the past eight years since I came out that, you know, I had to find a doctor who had never treated a trans person it it was very common for me that you know the psychologist I had to see not because I wanted to but because back then the medical structure required a psychologist letter and a diagnosis to support medical transition so I had to find and then see a psychologist who would even treat a trans person for that reason but not because like I needed a psychologist it was very frustrating um and you know i had to find a doctor who would be willing to treat a trans person even though she hadn't before and one of the odd things there was it was a huge struggle to get her to accelerate her treatment plan to what is medically expected there's the world professional association of transgender health or wpath they have a standard of care document they put out um, I think it's the seventh or eighth version now, and it just lays out like, here's here's the doses to give, here's the blood tests to do, here's the timeline. And she was like behind that because she was uncomfortable with it. And um, being trained as a philosopher, someone who can teach medical ethics, you know, I got to explain to her like how informed consent works and like, no, <laughs> you being uncomfortable with this document that lays out what to do is not how this works. Uh, I, I transitioned socially fully before I took my first medications. So yeah, it's what we call like full time. Um, I was a woman and living as one before I took any medications.
1: That's, that's impressive. I think it shows your strength and character and, and who you are.
0: Yeah, it was a confidence and, and I've always been one who thought, you know, fuck it. (laughs) I'm doing what I want to do. Um, you know, I started my undergraduate career as an athlete doing kinesiology or sports science and didn't like the career trajectory. So, hey, I took a chemistry class. I'm going to be a chemist now and just jumped headfirst into that, took, took three years of courses and did a, a work term, got into the lab and said, oh, my God, this sucks. I'm going to be a philosopher now. Like, none of this makes sense. But I've always gone all in on everything I've done and that included the transition.
1: And then, how soon you know you you start competing in with men's sports, and how soon are you competing in women's sports? Because I mean, obviously, depending on the sport you're you're doing, there's different rules for every governing body. And but on, yeah. on...
0: I, I was very lucky. So I'm Canadian, and at the time I did my PhD in in Waterloo, Ontario, and Ontario had Canada's first. Uh, human rights protections for trans people. The Ontario Human Rights Commission laid out a policy document saying, look, trans people gender identities is protected against harassment discrimination and my ID said female on it, right, driver's license that said female, the passport that said female. So the sports organization that I was dealing with was badminton at the time and the regional badminton association like met uh like a week after i came out to them and they're like yep nope you're fine if you have a piece of id you can compete no problem uh so i found my regional provincial organizations like super supportive so i wasn't competing right away but that's just because there weren't any tournaments at the time i think it was it was maybe two three months maybe until i competed and um yeah, so I was I was still playing sports the entire time.
1: When did you start doing cycling? How did you make that, that
0: change? Yeah, so I moved to Charleston, South Carolina to take up my position at the College of Charleston in 2014. And the previous year, I was doing a postdoc in Calgary, Alberta. And I chose Calgary specifically because it's a national badminton hotspot in Canada. It's, it's one of the national training centers and, you know, multiple national champions would just be in my sort of recreational play pool. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was still competing at a very high level um, in Badminton, moved to Charleston. And you have to be in one of a select few U.S. cities. Um, They have to be very large cities. They have to be like Boston, L.A. for Badminton to be a thing. In Canada, like most cities have dedicated Badminton facilities, and that's just not a thing here. No, it's not. Um, yeah, so I, I tried. I, I went to the the college is where like the only badminton club plays and the playing conditions are terrible and the quality of player is similar compared to at least my competitive level. So I, I just I had to quit because it just wasn't high enough quality to train. And so I tried other sports and I'm just terrible at running. And if you're terrible at running, you can't do triathlon either. So I took spin classes and just really fell in love with it. I had a road bike when I was uh, 20, 1920, and thought about racing but never got into it and then just said, screw it, I'm going to try that. So spin classes, bought a road bike, and within three months I was racing and won my second race and realized that, oh, like, Bampton's like, still my my lifelong love in terms of a sport but i am really good at cycling like it's just the thing my body was meant for Mm -hmm. and i just got into it as as a fish into water had my first season won my first state championship got a coach and took it very very seriously rose through the domestic pro ranks and um about three seasons later i I had a really, really terrible summer season and was just really sick of the road racing scene. It's It's got some problems for trans people and always wanted to try track cycling, mm-hmm. um, sort of my favorite sport to watch on TV. And my coach at the time just didn't want to coach a, trend, um, a track athlete. So I fired him, <laughs> I hired a new coach who's my current coach and like we love each other and got into track cycling and... Yeah, if I thought my body was meant for cycling, it is really meant for track cycling. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm just a natural sprinter, always have been, and it's so much fun.
1: Is there a track near
0: South Carolina that you can practice? In in Rock Hill, which is two and a half hours away. During this time of year, I'm often up there once a week uh, training so, yeah, there's, there's one two and a half hours away, and then I'll be racing in Atlanta next weekend, and that's about four and a half hours.
1: Because there's not that many of those tracks in – because it's the bank track, correct?
0: Yep. Uh, there's about a dozen, give or take, in the U.S., and only uh, three are yours. So there's one in, in L.A. where I won my world championship. There's one in, in Colorado. There's one in Detroit. Um, But all the rest are outdoors. So the Rock Hill one is a 45 degree outdoor track. The one I'll be racing at in Atlanta is about 30 degrees, but also outdoors. And every track's different. They all have their own little character.
1: Yeah, because I know there's one in the hometown that I grew up in, San Jose, California. Yep. I read somewhere that you have goals to make it to the 2020 Olympics.
0: Yeah, working on it. It's a long shot, but that's an aspiration.
1: It must be hard to balance the sport as well as your continuing education and your teaching. I mean, I would imagine all of those take a lot of time.
0: Yeah. I, I often think you can have a social life, a career and an athletic life. Um, pick two, you can't have all three. So my career and my racing and training are basically all I do. I, I just don't have much time for friends. Um, it, it helps being asexual in this sense that, like, I have no compulsion to date people. So mm-hmm. um, I don't have kids and I never will. I have dogs. So <laughs> basically all of my time goes into either being a professor or an athlete.
1: Let's move on to Castor Semenya. Okay. Obviously, I'm recording this. We're recording this on Sunday, May 5th. This episode's going to come out on Tuesday, May 7th. This past week. What is it? CAS came yeah. out with the ruling.
0: Yeah. The court of arbitration for sport or CAS. And
1: I guess we should back up because I, I one, I, d- I don't know a lot about Kester's. Um, I know she was born and raised a female. She is intersex according to articles I read, but for all intents and purposes, she's female.
0: Well, I don't think just all intents and purposes like she is female. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely female. Yeah. So Kasser is a South African um, black 800 meter sprinter. She has um, Olympic gold medals and some world championships. Um, She does not have a world record. And she has a condition that we call hyper androgenism, which means that her body naturally produces more testosterone than average for um, females. And, you know, most intersex people, this is just one form of like hundreds of intersex different conditions. Um, and even calling them conditions is a bit of a, is a bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. So, Almost, so about 1% of the world population is intersex of some form. And um, it would be a surprise to many people to know that not all humans are XX or XY chromosome. So not all males are XY, and not all females are XX. And that's like not even counting trans people for once. But there are certain things. So you can have what's called CAIS, complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, where you have XY chromosomes, your body produces a ton of testosterone, but your testosterone receptors don't work. So you develop into female, even though you have XY and lots of testosterone. Like mm-hmm. Biology is really cool and really complicated. Um, so there, there are many intersex conditions, about 1% of the population, and Castron has hyperandrogenism, which just means that her body produces more testosterone than we would expect for someone who's female but you know still to be expected we expect a certain percentage of intersex conditions and the the issue here is does that confer like this unfair competitive sports advantage and that's the big dispute and unfortunately she challenged a new policy by the IAAF, the International Association of Athletics Federations. This is the track and field people. They have a policy that restricts testosterone in women, and they specifically targeted Castor in her event, the 800 meter. They then picked the event on either side, so the 400 meter and the 1500 meter, of the mile, and they said, "Well, for these three events, if you have high testosterone, you must lower it, or you are banned." Now, one misconception is that this policy is not about whether she's female or not. This is not a sex verification policy. This is a a gender eligibility policy. So it's not saying she's female or not. It's saying, is she eligible as a female or is she ineligible as a female? And the court said, no, in a two to one split decision, um, we can spend hours on the science. And I'm very happy to uh it it's complicated and it's not but i think in my own expert opinion uh, i work on this topic that the court made some serious mistakes
1: and what were those
0: okay and so, and
1: let me explain let's let's imagine that your host doesn't know a lot about this subject <laughs>
0: so no, if that's we can, fine i if I we could break hear.
1: it down so i could understand
0: sure So uh, let's just start with like testosterone. Well, a lot of the way that we even talk about sex hormones is broken. Um, One, testosterone isn't only a sex hormone. It's not only responsible for like gendered or sexed body stuff. It's responsible for like 150 different body pathways and and effects. Uh, And all men and women have testosterone. So when we talk about testosterone as the male hormone, that's wrong. Um, All women have it too. And all men have estrogen. So even talking about like female versus male sex hormones, like the way that we even talk about it's wrong. So that's sort of testosterone. And then there's what we call endogenous versus exogenous. So endogenous testosterone is the stuff our body naturally produces. Castor's endogenous testosterone is high. That's the issue. Exogenous is the stuff we add to our body, and that's doping. That's not allowed. Um, The body doesn't know the difference between endogenous and exogenous, but we do know that if you take someone's level of testosterone and then you add more to it, they'll probably get faster. That's why we ban it. And we also know that if you take whatever their level is and you reduce it, they'll probably get slower, which is what they're forcing her to do.
1: Is there a way in a a test... Sorry to interrupt. Is there a way in a test to decide where the testosterone comes from? Like, if it's normal?
0: Yes, sort of. Um, Exogenous testosterone tends to be slightly chemically different than endogenous, and we can very easily test for that. So, anti-doping tests aren't measuring an athlete's natural testosterone at all. They're doing one of two things. One, they're looking at the ratio between testosterone and what's called epitestosterone. Don't worry about it. Um, (laughs) or the other thing is they're looking for, um, certain chemical signals or markers that it's exogenous synthetic testosterone. And that is really easy to do. It's really cheap. You do it in urine tests Um, If you want to know an athlete's endogenous testosterone, you have to do a blood test. And it's really expensive. They don't do it. Um, I mean, trans people, trans women get their testosterone tested all the time just like to know medically. But they just don't test athletes unless they suspect that you're like intersex or something like they did with Castor. So they are not testing endogenous. They are testing for exogenous, for doping. Okay. So... Here's the thing. There is absolutely no relationship between testosterone and performance. And that's between endogenous testosterone. Mm -hmm. We know there's a relationship between exogenous. But um, like I said, the body doesn't know the difference. So there have been experiments where you take a group of men who have volunteered for this. And you chemically reduce their testosterone. And then you add some back that's exogenous so you reduce their natural testosterone and then you dope them back to where they were and there will be no performance difference so like the body literally can't tell a difference what matters is what your body's used to but there's no relationship between your natural levels and performance so about 6.5 percent of elite cisgender male athletes are below the five nanomole level that the IAAF proposed as a rule to limit caster. So 6.5 of elite men athletes are already below that naturally. And they are at no competitive disadvantage at all. So there can be men with below the average women's level, which is 1.8 nanomoles per liter, that can have 30 times less than other elite men athletes, and they will be at no statistical disadvantage in performance at all. So the, the misconceptions that we have about if you naturally have more testosterone, then you will be bigger, faster, stronger, is completely false.
1: Oh, okay. Then what does lowering her testosterone amounts do?
0: Uh, well, it will make her slower. So again, uh, the science that we have, including the IAAF's own science, which is kind of what's really weird about this, Shows that there's no relationship in men at all between testosterone performance and the one in women that they think they found is not what they think they found. So, like I said, when we take someone's natural testosterone level and we lower it, they will probably get slower. But just because she has high natural testosterone is not correlated with her doing better.
1: What does it do to her as a human? I mean, Regardless oh of the athlete, it must screw with her as a human more than that, anything.
0: Well, it screws with her health and her as a human. Um, so, one of the issues here is that sport is a human right, according to the IOC. Their fundamental principles of Olympism, the fourth one begins the practice of sport as a human right, and they mean competitive sport. So, they're violating our human rights and they're saying, if you want to compete, then you have to take this medication that will not make you healthier. It will make you less healthy if you want to compete in sport, That's your human right. So, like, her dignity as a human is threatened by this. She's objectified in how people talk about her. Like, even I feel bad talking about her as this case when she's a person, right? Mm -hmm. She just wants to compete. She's She didn't know she was intersex until someone tested her because they suspected that she looked too masculine. Most intersex people don't know that they're intersex until something Mm -hmm. happens or we go and try and find out. So not only are her rights being violated, they're saying if you want to access your rights, you have to take a medication that will make you less healthy. And that is just obscene to me.
1: How much of this do you think is because she's black?
0: I think more than people want to admit Um, there, I I retweeted out a story, I think yesterday about how uh, in some of the racers that she's raced against, uh, I think one of them came fifth and she said after the race that, well, you know, she's happy that she was the second white person in the race. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's overtly racist.
1: That was in what the 2016 Olympics, I believe.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's nuts that you can see that and people are like, oh, is this an issue of race? It's like, yeah, this is an issue of race. But the the primary reason, like, irrespective of this, is that the not all the women will be tested for their endogenous testosterone because of this policy. In fact, almost none will. The way that they select who will be tested is that you don't look feminine enough. And our social concepts of femininity are modeled on white women's femininity and so that means that women of color and very particularly black women are disproportionately viewed as too masculine Mm -hmm. or not feminine enough so it's absolutely no accident that Casser is not white
1: it's interesting because I trying to learn more about her and her sport and everything I was looking at the Um, fastest times in 800 meters overall. And the top two are two Eastern European from the era where steroids was a big deal in the 80s. And they have the world record and the second fastest ever.
0: And And no one's ever complained. Right. And her very best time ever is fourth all time. So it's not even the world record. But again, a, a black woman in particular, but women of color more generally, are disproportionately singled out as being not feminine enough, and that is entirely what's behind this. It's not based on science. It, so the the study of the IAAF based their policy on um, is a 2017 paper by Stefan Berman and Pierre-Yves Garnier, and they looked at the relationship in like over 2,000 IAAF World Championship athletes from 2011 and 2013, men and women. And they found no relationship at all in men between testosterone performance. And they found a very unreliable one in women. And in their publication, they buried the finding about men to two sentences. So I have the data in front of me. They looked at 11 track events or running events. They looked at 10 field events. So, you know, throwing and jumping stuff. Mm -hmm. So if we just look at the running events, the average... Correlation between high testosterone and better performance was 0.3%, which is nothing, nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, in Caster's event, the 800 meters, it was 1.8% "quote unquote" advantage to have high testosterone, and that's what they singled out. The 400 meters was 2.7%. So if you only look at that, you're like, oh, see, this there's an advantage. But out of the 11 events that they looked at, only Four showed any advantage at all at all the other seven of the 11 showed a disadvantage also the events that you would expect higher testosterone to be an advantage are the sprinting events like the very very short ones like the 100 meter 200 meter well the 100 meter was a 2.6 disadvantage for high testosterone the 200 was a 1.6 disadvantage for high testosterone and oh, really? just, i know and there's no pattern to the data Also, of all the running events, the event that showed the highest quote-unquote advantage was the marathon at 3%, and the IAAF left that event out of their policy. So if they're basing their policy on this data and saying, well, let's pick the events with the highest quote-unquote advantage and single those out, they didn't even single out the marathon. They also didn't single out a single one of the field events.
1: Well, yeah, it definitely seems like this um, decision was just about her?
0: Well, the IAAF argued that it wasn't, and the court seemed to agree. But it's, it's just so obvious when you look at the visual representation of the data that they laser-focused on her event. They picked the one event on either side, the 400, the 1500. And the funny thing is the court's decision said well your own data on the 1500 shows that there's a disadvantage so your policy is excluded for that event so this makes me think as a professor as a teacher of a student who plagiarizes but changes every 10th word and thinks we won't notice
1: i guess she's come out and said she's not going to really fight it anymore it sounds like she's just going to go to the 5000 meter
0: yeah, there's there's not a lot she can do, unfortunately. Uh, the way that the legal structure of sport works is the Court of Arbitration for Sport is basically the Supreme Court for sport. And the only way she could fight this is to either go um, to the Swiss court, which probably wouldn't work because they are very loath to intervene in cast decisions. She could go to the Monaco court because the IAAF's home office is in Monaco. Or she could try what a a Canadian track cyclist did and take them to her home country's human rights court, so South Africa. And then that would be like a really nasty fight because the IAAF and the IOC and other sports don't want to give jurisdiction to any nation. Mm -hmm. So... In terms of legal options, she just doesn't have many, and it's really shitty.
1: Yeah, that's too bad. But I hope she does well in the 5000. I'm sure she will. Because it's one thing to have the um, testosterone, but she obviously also works at it.
0: Well, of course Um, she does. Like, so... I I don't know how she's going to do some 800 meter runners do transition to the longer distances, the 3000 and the the 5000, but they're really physiologically different events. So you take someone like me, who's just a gifted sprinter and you have me race pro races on a flat course. Uh, one of the the professional road races I won had a downhill finish. And when you're 40 pounds heavier than other people, that's a big advantage going downhill because of physics. But the very next stage was a very mountainous road r- race. And within a quarter mile of the first climb, which was like two minutes into the race, I was out the back and never saw the the pack again. So like bodies are designed for different events and there's no guarantee that someone who's successful at the 800 would be even remotely successful at at the 5000
1: yeah true lately i mean last week on twitter trans athletes have been a big this has been a big topic i mean it's been for everyone but how does this decision affect trans athletes how is it related
0: i think directly it doesn't and here's why I thought before this decision and I still think it now that even if she had won, this would not have changed things for trans athletes. It wouldn't have immediately changed any of the policies for trans athletes because sports organizations would be able to say that, well, this was a case about intersex athletes, not trans athletes. So Mm -hmm. sports organizations could have ignored her winning the case. However, I think her losing the case will hurt trans people for sure because the basis of the decision is still based on false stereotypes and not scientific evidence about the relationship between testosterone and performance. And it continues and perpetuates these stereotypes about femininity and that we should be suspicious of exceptional women athletes, but we celebrate exceptional men athletes. So here's the thing, we don't limit testosterone in men at all. In fact, the only natural physical characteristic for which we limit sport period is only for women, and it's only testosterone. But if you look at sports like high jump, for example, I've I've made some infographics about this, and at the 2016 Rio Olympics, the um, average podium height was about six foot two. But the gold medalist height was the tallest person in the field at over six foot three. The 10th place person, the last person in the final was five five. So that is over 10 inch difference in height in a high jump, which is the one sport that selects for height most powerfully of any sport. Yeah. But we permit that and we call that fair. So the IAAF's own data shows at most a one or 2% difference between low testosterone and high testosterone. And I think even granting that, like I think the data is bullshit, but even granting that, we, we permit way larger advantages due to height. If you look at Michael Phelps in swimming, there have been multiple articles written about him using the terms biological freak in an endearing way, saying, Well, isn't he lucky to be born with these biological gifts? So we celebrate exceptional men. We celebrate people like Usain Bolt, who dominate their sport. He won eight gold medals in three successive Olympics. But you have Castor. And, oh no, we need to construct rules to exclude her, because she's born with certain gifts, and, well, women can't have those.
1: Yeah, and you look at, like, Katie Ledecky in swimming, who was just dominating in the pool.
0: Every single gold medalist is a biological freak in some sense. And I do mean that in an endearing way, because that's how sport works. But the only one that we single out for exclusion is testosterone. And it's only in women, even though there's no scientific evidence supporting that.
1: Do you think trans males have an easier time in sport than trans females because of this?
0: Yes and no. So um, I, I, I know some trans guy athletes. Um, certainly friends with a bunch, but also like Chris Mosier has been really good to me and someone that I turn to when I need help. And they certainly have an easier time. Um, The, the sort of the opposition to trans women is also the cause of why trans guys have a bit of an easier time and it's just misogyny and sexism. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that trans women are really men and that we need to protect women's sport from people who aren't women. And, you know, that's pretty scary language and people have been using that around Caster. So they're saying we need to protect women's sport from a woman Um, is inherently discriminatory. But since they think trans women are really men competing with women, they also think that trans men are really women. And people have this misconception that, well, men are all stronger than all women. And if trans men are really women, then fuck it, let them compete with the men, they're going to lose anyway, right? So this sort of sexism is behind why trans guys have an easier time. However, um, one way that they struggle is that they're completely erased from the conversation. I have seen hundreds of times, way too many times to count, people say, like, they're talking about trans women athletes, and like, well, where are the trans men, like, if, if there's, like, no advantage for trans women, why don't we see successful trans men? I'm like, you do. You just don't remember. And Chris Mosier is easily the most corporately successful trans athlete ever. Mm-hmm. He had a Nike TV campaign during the Rio Olympics. He's still a Nike athlete. And people think that trans men athletes don't exist. Like, the most televised trans athlete ever is a trans guy and people are like where are they and I've even seen cases with like Mac Beggs who was a high school trans guy wrestler in Texas who uh, Texas law or policy was that uh, you have to compete in your birth assigned sex and they wouldn't change his birth certificate so they forced a trans guy on medical testosterone to compete with the girls yeah he didn't want to compete with the girls the girls didn't want him to compete with the girls the parents the coaches like no one wanted this but texas law forced it he's now wrestling on a college men's team where he belongs and i have seen dozens of transphobic people post images of lots of trans women athletes they think it's unfair but they post him too They think he's a trans girl. So you have these famous trans man athletes who are completely erased. They don't even remember Chris's TV campaigns. And they think Mac is a girl, like a trans girl. Like it's, that's the way that they, they struggle most.
1: Well, yeah. And the outrage for Mac was because he was, you know, beating everyone, but he didn't want that. He wanted different. He fought right. for different. Yep. It was the government that forced him to do it.
0: Yeah, it was the state government. So when he moved to college, the NCAA has really led the way on trans-inclusive policies over the years. Um, he was immediately on the men's team.
1: Yeah, and obviously the only reason why they, they kept that rule is because they didn't want to set precedent for a male to be in a female sport.
0: Well, even then, I mean, trans women aren't male. Um, so, you know, you take me, for example, I'm, I'm legally female, I'm medically female, right? Doctors all list female for my medical records and all my ID says female. So mm. if they're trying to create policies that um, exclude males from female sport. None of these trans exclusive policies will even do that. So look at the testosterone policies, for example. People say, well, the current IOC policy is 10 nanomoles per liter. Well, we should drop that to 5 nanomoles. And so I come along and say, yeah, but the data we have shows that 6.5% of elite cis males are already below that number. No testosterone policy will ever work to exclude males from female sport. Ever. Bodies don't work that way. So the way that we exclude Men from women's sport is we already have policies about men can't compete in women's sport because they're men, not because of any physiological characteristic they have.
1: Well, yeah, don't you think it's an irrational fear? It's like, um, I've tweeted this out before, but there was the movie in the 80s or 90s, I think it was 90s, Ladybugs with Rodgy, Rodney Dangerfield, where basically a teen boy just put a wig on. I some way think that that's the fear that they're going to have that just these guys who don't want to be transgendered who aren't transgendered at all are going to do that and that's not a thing
0: well just think about martina navratilova wrote an op-ed in the sunday times in the uk calling me by name a cheater for being trans and her entire argument boiled down to this fabricated fantasy where she said well These policies mean it's possible for a cisgender man to uh, basically become a trans woman, dominate sport, and then go back to being a man and make babies, like she used those words. And you're right, this is an unfounded, irrational fear. This just doesn't happen. So let me explain the timeline for the current trans policies. So if you're in the U.S., Um, The timeline in the U.S. is like the shortest, usually just because the way the medical system here works, provided you have money Mm -hmm. Um, in in Canada, it's longer in the U.K. It's way longer um, because just the way their system works there. There are so few gender identity clinics there that you have to um, generally find a psychologist who will uh, formally diagnose you with gender dysphoria So that takes a minimum of three to six months of them seeing you. And you have to convince them that you're really trans. If there's even a whiff that you're faking it, they won't write the letter. Then you have to go find a doctor who's even willing to treat you. And most won't. Who will prescribe antiandrogens to lower your testosterone. And it takes six months just to drop your testosterone levels below 10 animals for most people. So we're looking at a year before your testosterone is even below the limit. And then you have to be below that limit for at least 12 months waiting period. So now we're at two years. And then the entire time you compete, you have to maintain those low levels. If your testosterone levels ever um, rise above the limit, your 12-month clock starts over. And so it's a minimum of two years being, like, optimistic, for you to go from, I want to cheat <laughs> and compete with the women, you have to convince a psychologist, you have to take all these medications for 18 months, and then you go compete. Again, if there's a whiff of you committing fraud, you're banned for fraud. Like, fraud is still against the rules. Mm-hmm. So, this has never, there has never been a recorded case of this. I don't think there ever will be. This is an irrational fear of trans women, which is the dictionary definition of transphobia. This is transphobia, and we need to call it what it is.
1: Well, yeah, and just not in sport. I mean, the whole bathroom situation, it's a joke. I mean, a predator's going to be a predator regardless of who they are.
0: I, I really wonder if the people who are opposing trans women in, in women's bathrooms think that there's some sort of magic force field at a bathroom door that stops men from coming in because there isn't um a cis man is not going to dress up as a woman in order to go into a woman's bathroom to like do bad things they're just gonna walk the fuck in Mm -hmm. so again like this just doesn't happen and we have plenty we've there hasn't been a documented verified case of a of a cis man or sorry a trans woman committing these assaults in a woman's bathroom but there have been dozens of confirmed verified cases of cis women assaulting trans women in women's bathrooms so the bathrooms are far more dangerous for the trans woman than they are for cis women
1: Mm -hmm. in places in europe it's just customary to have a, a gender neutral bathroom
0: yeah and i i started this sticker campaign and i I fundraised for it and I send out these stickers to anyone who asks. Um, They're free for trans people that says uh, it's a picture of a toilet and a a trans person was here and nothing bad happened because it's true. Also, I'd like to remind people that airplane bathrooms are gender neutral.
1: Yeah, that's a good point.
0: That's actually where I have the thought.
1: (laughs) Because I want to go over some of the, the myths that you are constantly being battled on on Twitter. There are some angry people out there that for whatever reason just are constantly coming after you.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm fully um, stalked online. Yeah. I, it, I'm
1: stalked. It's really bizarre.
0: They need a better hobby.
1: Because, you know, I understand having, especially if you're a former athlete, actually, well, not even a former athlete, that doesn't make more sense, but I understand having the thought that, you know, trans athletes are have an advantage. Whatever. If you want to believe that, whatever. But why is there so much anger behind it?
0: Well, in a word, it's transphobia. And since it's almost universally directed at trans women, the term we use is trans transmisogyny. That, that is what it is. It's an irrational fear of trans women. These people believe what they're doing is in the best interest of society. Like, they think they're doing the right thing. At least I think that's the charitable reading of what they're doing. I mean, they're wrong. They're assholes. But they think, for some reason, that trans women pose a danger to, quote-unquote, real women. And that's entirely what this comes down to. The issue with Caster, the issue with me as a world champion trans athlete, is they don't consider us real women. And that's entirely what it boils down to.
1: Do you ever see a day where that'll change?
0: So one of the things I do for money is uh, travel the world speaking and I'll be in Japan uh, this summer for a speaking tour. Like I make, I make a lot of money doing this. And I, I talked to someone saying, sort of musing that, well, it'd be nice to sort of stop doing the professor thing and just do this full time. And they said, well, don't you think that you might run out of material? <laughs> so they're, they're asking the same question as you. And I said, well, not in my lifetime. So I, I have hopes. I, I hope that in years in the future, we will look back now and realize and just wonder how were people this terrible. But I just don't see us, like we're not even 20 years from there, I don't think.
1: Do you think athletics is the last fight there is.
0: So that's interesting. There's kind of this nexus that people uh, focus on at excluding trans women in particular and they certainly started with bathrooms and change rooms and it seems like they have moved on to sport. I think they've, they've mostly realized they've lost the bathroom fight and so their last bastion of hope is sport. The thing is sport is both a model for and a product of social values. So the Olympics in particular is an aspirational organization. Its fundamental principles of Olympism are focused on fairness, inclusion, non-discrimination, sport is a human right, right and mutual understanding and fair play. Like they use these words. So the IOC and the Olympics in particular is meant to, promote social inclusion. It's meant to lead the way. So in many cases, sport has led social change. Um, You know, baseball in the U.S. helped lead the civil rights movement for uh, Black people. So in many cases, sport leads, but it's still a product of society. So we have these bad rules for intersex and trans athletes because society is so broadly transphobic and trans ignorant. So I, I have hope that there are a number of national and international sports organizations. Most recently, USA Cycling had a policy, but USA Hockey a couple months ago, came out with a fantastic trans-inclusive policy. And USA Hockey is the feeder organization for the Olympics. So this is a major organization with a lot of money, and they decided on trans-inclusion. So I think that we have a tide that won't be going away. I, I think we're on the path to things being better and with sport leading the way. But um, times like right now, times certainly after I won my world championship, are momentary setbacks. They're sort of stalling progress in some senses. What's unfortunate is that real people will be hurt by this in in the here and now. So I have hope for the next 10 years. I think a lot will change in the next five years, like a, a lot. But before we get there, a lot of real people will be hurt.
1: Yeah, that's a shame. Do you think it's easier to be an athlete that an individual sport like you know cycling, badminton, golf, primarily the sports you played or that you talked about? Obviously, you played others. Or do you think it's easier to be in a team sport where you're not sticking out as much and you're part of a, a group instead of an individual?
0: That's a great question. As someone who just personally gravitates towards individual sports. I don't think I know the answer to that. It's certainly the case that trans people tend to gravitate towards individual sports and they tend to gravitate towards sports like cycling and running and triathlon where a lot of our training is done alone, where we don't have to sort of have these uh, stressors of just training. Um, So in badminton, like you have to train with other people for Mm -hmm. the most part. And so in a sense, it's like a team training thing, even though you're competing individually or in pairs. And so I I certainly found a ton of support within badminton communities and in cycling more broadly, because while I do most of my training on my own, I I would go for group rides. I, I suspect it's easier to compete on a team as a trans person for the reasons you suggest that you you don't stand out as much as an individual as a trans person. So when I win in a race as a trans person, like I'm the only person they're going to look at for being trans. But if I were on a team of 20 people, it's a lot harder to point to me as an individual and say, "Well, that's why they won." So I think that sort of shared responsibility for outcomes I suspect it's easier to be a trans athlete on a team, but it sort of increases the chances that you have a shitty transphobic teammate.
1: True. Very true. How do you handle the, whether it's online with the constant abuse or even at these high moments where you win a race, but then you deal with some asshole comment online or in person.
0: How do you, how do you handle that? a lot of therapy. So it's the World seriously? Championship, Yeah, seriously. Uh <laughs> a lot of therapy. Um for example, the World Championships. I raced in two events. So these are the Masters World Championships and I was the thirty-five to thirty nine age group for the five hundred meter time trial. I came fourth and uh in the, the match sprint is the one I won. That was the 35 to 44 each group. So I came fourth in the 500. I won the sprint event. The woman who won the 500 meter also beat me in the sprint qualifying. So I did break the world record in my sprint qualifying, and I held that record for all of 10 minutes. And then Sarah Feder broke the record after me. So she won gold in the 500 meter a few days earlier. She qualified First and fastest in the 200 meter, beating me both times. And then she withdrew from the sprint competition in protest over me being trans. Oh, wow. So, someone needs to explain to me how you can beat me both times we've ever raced and then you pull out claiming it's unfair. Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. And it was deeply suspicious to me when she pulled out. When I went to look at the first round races, I saw my name up top as the top seated rider and I went to an official saying what, what happened? Where's Sarah? Is she okay? And they said, no, she pulled out. I saw her sitting in her, um, sort of ready area, looked fine. She wasn't hurt. She wasn't trying to leave quickly. Like it was pretty obvious to me at the time that she pulled out for those reasons. Other people were maybe more naive. Uh, Think, oh no, maybe she had a good reason. And then in an interview a couple months later with Velo News, she just flat out said, oh yeah, I pulled out because of Rachel. So, like, I, I have to, during races, I have PTSD from workplace and sports harassment that I have to, like, have all these strategies to just be at these races, just to be in a competitive space, even when everything's going right. And then when you add on top of that some bullshit like she pulled, like uh, this is where all the therapy comes in. I have to use all these tools just to not break down, like at a Mm -hmm. competition. So, yeah, I I have to do certain things like surround myself with as many supportive people as I can. Um, The person I was staying with came and, and hung out with me the entire time. Um, I have to turn off all of my social media. I uninstall it on my phone at races so I can't access it. So, yeah, I have to do all these things just to even exist.
1: It's sad we're still at that point. And you mentioned about people being hurt now. I and mean, obviously, you're one of them. You I mean, I would say you have a, a somewhat tough exterior on social media
0: because yeah. Yeah. you have
1: to um, yep, basically. But these people don't see what they're doing to not only you, but every athlete.
0: Well, I think some of them. So like one phrase we have is it's it's not a bug, it's a feature. They want to hurt people. So it's not just that they don't realize the the harm they're causing. Like, that's the point. They do want to hurt people.
1: Is there any organization, any any governing body in all of sports that has the 100 percent correct rule on trans athletes
0: roller derby really yeah they they have a policy of you say you're a woman you're in and even then you can be non-binary they don't care so it's a it's a a quote-unquote female only sport roller derby is just women competing it's a worldwide sport and yeah they they have the best policy in all of sport that doesn't mean there aren't transphobic people in Roller Derby. There, there absolutely are. I have a whole bunch of friends who are in Roller Derby. Who are cis and trans and non-binary. But the organization. Particularly the. the I think it's the World Flat Track Association. Yeah, I think it's Wolf called.
1: Dada, the, yeah. is, my yeah. I, I was involved in our local. Roller Derby League for a while. So oh, I know sweet. a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So them. They have the best.
1: Yeah. The WFTDA. Yes. And they actually came out with that policy. I think quite a few years ago.
0: Oh, yeah, they were definitely leading the charge. So um, USA Hockey, I think, has, a, has an excellent policy, and I heavily applaud them, particularly on their uh, change room and locker room policy. Um, for juniors, for example, the policy is that um, you can't bear your chest or genitals at all, so you must come with your base layer already on. So as to not force people to um, sort of expose themselves or to be exposed of other people. So like, I think they were just very aware of how they can address this at grassroots and junior levels. There is a, a major U.S. organization that I can't name yet about to come out with, you know, with an absolutely excellent trans policy. Not quite as good as roller derby, but darn close.
1: Really, I can't wait to hear that. I Going back to the clothing thing, that's not even something I would have thought about.
0: That's why I'm, I'm just so impressed with their including something like that. Like they, they really did thoroughly think through all of the ramifications.
1: Do you think someone who's trans played a part in that? Because I think that is something that most people wouldn't think of.
0: Oh, yeah, there, there had to be trans people consulting. And that's something that I do with other organizations. They didn't consult me. Um, this other organization that's coming out has, uh, and I've consulted with a number of others. There's, um, there's I, I forget the name of it, but it's a, an American women's football league has oh, a okay. trans inclusive policy. Um, yeah, so all of these tend to consult with trans people at some level.
1: It's interesting, too, that those are all team sports.
0: Going Except back to that. For the, well, USA Cycling isn't team, and um, the other one that's about to come out isn't a team sport.
1: Oh, okay, that's good, then, that you are going to see individual sports, individual uh, athlete sports come out yeah, it's with important
0: some. to see just sport, right? The whole spectrum.
1: Yeah. I want to talk about your clothing line you have. Oh, okay. What is the name of it?
0: So my design project is just called Rainbow Fox Designs. Um, I, I sort of refer to myself as the Rainbow Fox. My cycling team is Rainbow Fox Cycling. Um, so I have a store. It's the, the top link tweet I have. It's, it's primarily through Teespring. So if you just look for Rainbow Fox Designs, um, there's a whole bunch of different types of designs, but the primary focus is on inclusive sport. My my hashtag that I, I want other people to use is sport is a human right. So I have um, some designs with a, a very geometric rainbow fox with sport is a human right. Also um, a variety of sports with pride and trans flag um, designs. So soccer and cycling. Yeah.
1: And I think it's important to mentioned too that you talked about inclusive you're not only doing um sex and gender you're also doing race um because i think i saw some of the shirts that actually had people of color as the the person
0: yeah well not just as yeah so um i you to do this right you can't only talk about sex and gender in in exclusion from race we call this intersectionality these things are not uh, separated fully so like when I talk about Kassar Semenya and I said it's not an it's not an accident that she's a woman of color and specifically a black woman That's because there's an intersection between being black and being female that they view black women as is not real women um, so one of my designs my my nickname that a, a friend who happened to be a roller derby person gave me is her Thinus so i have a her design that both has a white woman and a black woman as as options also the um, mock-up models that i use use a different um, range of races
2: mm-hmm.
1: what's the overall message you want to get out with that clothing line
0: sports a human right everyone has a right to compete and sports should be welcoming of everybody and every body Is there any
1: myths you want to correct about you? Uh,
0: uh,
1: Because I feel like depending on who you
2: talk to, you're going to get a different description.
0: So one is people who know that someone is trans tend to think that, well, of course, I can see that they're trans. That's not true. Um, People don't know I'm trans unless you read something about me or you read something that I've written about being trans or listen to this podcast. Uh, Most people who interact with me face to face have no idea. And that includes, for example, um, at the World Championships, the two photographers who are doing close ups of my face and my body, both racing and on the podium and sitting around, Um, I emailed one of them to get some photos because so many publications wanted to write about me that I wanted to give them better photos. And he's like, oh, by the way, I had no idea. And then he was super supportive. So one is a myth that you can just see trans people and know. No, it's just it doesn't work that way. So sure, some people are visibly trans, but it's it's certainly annoying when people look at a trans woman and say, oh, it's because of this, this and this oh, look at her shoulders. Oh, look at her jaw. I I want people to think about what they're saying because what you're saying is that women don't look like that. And so that's what feeds into these norms of femininity that then harm people like Castor. Mm -hmm. And I think the second myth is that I definitely have a tough exterior. I've had to be a fighter in my life in order to get where I am and do what I do and, and to not sort of fold. But... So a lot of people think, oh, I don't need to say anything um, in response to a lot of the hate. I don't need to speak for Rachel. Like, she can defend herself. And I want to say, no, no, no. Say something, please. Even even your strongest friends aren't as strong as you think.
1: I th- I mentioned a few times, I think, or at least once in emails leading up to this, that I was definitely intimidated by you. Not only because your intelligence, but also just because of you know, going after people on Twitter the way you have to.
0: Yeah. I don't take shit from people and I don't care who you are. And certain people who are used to certain level of deference really don't like that about me. Um, So I think people like Martina Navratilova, Sharon Davies, like they think they're these famous untouchable people and no, I don't care who you are. And For a while, especially early in my cycling career, I worked really hard to not be intimidating to people and in a way that I think made me a worse racer. So rather than going, so this is funny that I I still do this now and I've been working lately. Everything that I do as a track sprinter is 100% and maximal. And what most people think is their max effort isn't you have to learn how to really give a max effort where you can't walk afterwards. And your face looks funny when you do that properly. (laughs) But I would try to not look mean when I'm doing that because I would worry about people thinking I'm like too aggressive or something. Mm -hmm. And it's only been recently where I'm like, no, like they think that about you anyway, just perform better. So like I have to, untrain these sorts of ways of suppressing strength. Um so yeah, like for a long time I tried not to be intimidating and then it it finally just even now I still work on it, but like good, be intimidated. Like I want you intimidated. That's better for me.
1: Yeah. As an athlete and competitor, you need to be
0: exactly so I've been trying to embrace it a bit more and it's just so hard. I bet. I am, I promise, a really nice person if you get to know me. Oh, no, and, honestly,
1: just this conversation has been great. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Well, I think, like, a lot of people see that sort of tough exterior, especially on Twitter, and they think, oh, my God, she must be such a bitch. And <laughs> um, it would surprise, I make friends really, really easily because, you know, I'm not a bitch. I'm just, I have to have, be tough on Twitter because that's where I get all this harassment.
1: Yeah, I bet. I want to sort of wrap up now just because I've already talked for an hour and a half or so and I want you to be able to enjoy the rest of your Sunday. But I have my final 20 questions I ask everyone.
0: Oh my god, okay. Um,
1: it's a little pop culture, just random stuff. Um, so let's do this. The first one is, if you could have a superpower, what would it be?
0: Uh, teleportation. Nice.
1: Do you, do you listen to podcasts? Do you have a favorite one?
0: I used to listen to them more, one that I really like, and it's more, it's more from like my part of the world, but it's the Unmute podcast, and it focuses on like making philosophy more accessible and talking to like very diverse figures and their work um, in philosophy and society.
1: All right. Who was your first celebrity crush?
0: You mean like romantically or just... Just, I, you know,
1: usually it's a it's teen thing. <laughs> and if you don't have one, that's fine. Oh, no,
0: I'm thinking I really don't. I just, that, that wasn't me. I was more like sports idols.
2: Okay. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Oh my God.
0: You know, I, I've had these questions a lot about like if you could have a dinner party, who would it mm-hmm. be? i never have an answer i never <laughs> do maybe like socrates and i'd call him a dick because <laughs> he was he's was horrible all right that'll work what is the most interesting
1: thing you've read or seen this week
0: you know my life has been really full with the Castor thing uh so i'm trying to think of like anything that stands out as is particularly good reporting um yeah I would have to go look through my Twitter to actually say, but um honestly, I retweet so much stuff that I think is good and worth looking at, so i would I would look there
1: yeah and I could see just with the whole caster story this week, I mean even little things like um articles I've read where it's like male hormones and they don't really go and break it down any more than that, or I mean, there's so many things with this that's been interesting, so i I could see. Yeah. with your busy life we've talked about do you have a chance to watch anything on tv or streaming obsessions do you have any
0: yeah so like the weird thing about how full my days are is it's really hard for me to sit down and watch anything so i, I often watch a lot of reruns um, but i am definitely waiting for rick and morty's next season to come out All okay. right.
1: which fictional character would you like to meet in real life
0: oh my god <laughs> i guess catness. all right
1: if animals could talk which animal would be the most annoying
0: <laughs> probably a honey badger
2: <laughs> <laughs> who inspires you
0: honestly all the people who um struggle more than i do and reach out to me For support, and I try to tell them that they're what keeps me going.
2: All right. What is your favorite word?
0: (laughs) It's a philosophy word. It's super erogatory. It means going above and beyond the Call of Duty.
2: All right. What is your least favorite word?
0: Oh, it's definitely the T slur for trans people
2: what turns you excuse me what turns you on creatively spiritually or emotionally i really like
0: being a so i love the aha moment like being a professor I, i get to see that in the classroom and that's certainly my favorite thing where um like i like to lead people to their own discoveries and just sort of ask them questions until they figure stuff out for themselves but um, what I really like about creating is making information visually accessible um, in a way that, you know, it's a very complicated topic. So, you know, these these infographics I've done on, you know, there's been over 52,000 Olympians since the first trans-inclusive policy, and there hasn't been a single trans-Olympian ever, like those sorts of things. I, I mm-hmm. love making that sort of information accessible.
2: All right, that's perfect. What turns you off? Willful ignorance. What is your favorite curse word? <laughs> fuck. <laughs>
1: what sound
0: or sorry, I'm a big fan of like George Carlin's bit on fuck and how useful the term is. And you usually oh, yeah. like a, a noun, a verb, an adjective. It's great.
2: <laughs> what sound or noise do you love?
0: my uh my older dog dreaming kind of sounds like he's growling and he's just always really cute all right what sound or noise do you hate (laughs) crying babies especially on planes
1: yeah what profession other than your own would you like to attempt
0: so i mean i sort of do it just not like as a profession but information design so like making infographics and and making graphs look pretty sort of thing. I like.
2: Okay. What profession would you not like to do?
0: I am definitely privileged. Uh, I, I would hate anything where I had to be on my feet all day where I was working with people dumber than me (laughs) (laughs) um, who would be like supporting corporate policies that just don't make sense. So I think like a a corporatized job where I was on my feet all day, it would just be the worst thing. I I, like many people. I started in retail and like Mm -hmm. a a retail. Oh my God. Hated it.
1: Yeah. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates?
0: (laughs) How did you all fuck this up so much?
1: (laughs) My final question is this. I, one of the reasons why I do this podcast is so many kids are struggling with who they are um, as my first trans athlete I've spoken to. Um, I think it's even more so for, for you, what is something you'd want to tell a 12 or 13 year old boy who, or girl who's come to terms with who they are, um, finally admitting to themselves who they are. What was that one thing you'd want to tell them to help them that you've learned?
0: I'm not going to say it gets better across the board. It is getting better. But what I would like you to do is not give up and aggressively cultivate your support group, however you're able to do that.
1: Rachel, I was intimidated and I was extremely nervous for the episode, but I am so glad I had a chance to talk with you.
0: Me too. It's great. Thank you.
1: Yeah, not only are you smart, but you're
2: uh, funny. Your personality came through and I really enjoyed the time we had. Good. I'm glad.